Welcome to Communicate Like You Give a Damn, the podcast. Our guests share their stories and approaches to embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in communications because, I mean, let's be honest, we know the power of language. And language leads to behavior. So thank you. Thank you for joining us in leveling up your communications. I'm your host, Kim Clark. And DEI communications, it's, it's kind of my thing. So let's get into it. Let's learn more about how to communicate like you give a damn. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Kim Clark here, a host of Communicate Like You Give a Damn. And <laughs> this is a kind of a special event, uh, especially for me. Aww. Not originally, but recently <laughs> from the same area of the country around the Tulsa, Oklahoma area. Uh, and we're going to talk about indigenous experience and representation, especially through stereotypes, language, uh, media representation, film representation. She's in all of that scene. And with her lived experience and professional experience, this is, this is no doubt going to be one where you're going to need to get out a notebook and take some notes. So we're going to have some call to action for you here and there. All right. With that, Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Please introduce yourself. Thank you so much. Um, that's a really gracious welcome. So thank you very much for having me. Um, I don't, I'm just going to say, don't take notes. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe we don't want a, a historical record of what happened here. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, but really, that that's uh, it's a really gracious, um, very gracious uh, introduction there. So thank you so much for having having me. Um, yeah, my name is Amanda Clinton. Um, people back home will call me Mandy, and that's awesome. That's what my family calls me. That's what everybody that I grew up with calls me. So some people out there will know me as Mandy, but uh, my government name is Amanda. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I grew up um, in Mays County, Oklahoma, um, really right on the Mays, Delaware, Cherokee County line, sort of. My family has been in that area for, you know, really as far back as I can tell since like the eight. 1960s ish at least you know so where our family farm is um you know my ancestors have been there for um you know going back as far as um uh, you know I, I found my family on the rolls there you know way or not on the roll well actually on some rolls on some census rolls back you know as far as like the civil war era so um you know i obviously feel you know very connected to that land i feel of, you know, quite an affinity for that area. Um, I live in Tulsa now, but um, I grew up out there and I go back and visit quite often. Um, my dad is actually buried on one of our last um, allotments. You know, we don't own it anymore. It's actually a, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a Cherokee cemetery. It's where my dad's buried. It's where my great grandparents are buried. It's where my great, great grandparents are buried. It's called McLean Cemetery. And um, that's one of my Cherokee family names is McLean. And so you have to be, a, you have to be Cherokee to be buried there. And it's, you know, it's where all of our relatives are buried, which is south of Locust Grove. Um, Mace, Locust Grove is one of the towns there in Mace County. Uh, my uh, most direct full blood ancestor is my great grandmother. And uh, her DOS card is actually in Locust Grove. It's signed Locust Grove 
um, Indian territory. And that's, you know, we just prior to statehood is where she and her uh, parents um, were enrolled on the, with the DOS commission um, just prior to statehood. So their DOS card actually says Locust Grove and that's where I went to high school in Locust Grove. So we have a very rich history in that area. Um, I went to actually elementary school at a small K through eight um, school at Kenwood. Um, it's one of our traditional Cherokee communities uh, where we have a lot of full blood um, Cherokees, a lot of first language speakers that have come up through there. My mom taught at Kenwood school for 30 years. She started teaching there in 1971. And when she first began teaching there, um, you know, she had students who, you know, Cherokee was their first language. Mm. You know, she had students who, you know, you know, barely spoke English. And so, um, you know, then by the time she uh, left teaching there, I think in 2001, um, you know, there were some, you know, there were a lot of students who, you know, most students, you know, Cherokee was not their first language by then. Um, so it's interesting um, just how quickly, you know, the language can go. And so I think it's just so important to preserve that. And because when you're, you know, your language is what holds a community together. Um, and it's, it's what ties, uh, it's, it's so much of what ties a community together, what ties the people together. And so I just feel really fortunate that I was able to grow up around other Cherokees and to experience that. And, and looking back, I think I, I don't, I didn't really appreciate how special that was. Um, you know, there would be days like the first really pretty day in spring, uh, you know, our teachers, we would have class outside. We'd go outside and take our books outside. And I can remember one of our, one of our teachers, uh, Jan Ballou, we, I remember we would go down to the creek. There was, you know, a creek that ran through there. And so we'd go to this um, creek bottom and dig wild onions sometimes and take them back to school. I mean, it was just a very, it, it, in high, I mean, I had no idea. I didn't know any different. Um, it was a very different experience. Now I see that many of my <laughs> contemporaries had growing up, and uh, so you know, it was a it was a special um, it was a special way to grow up, and uh, just really grateful for that. Um, anyway, so that's kind of how I grew up. My my dad's Cherokee. My mom's not, but um, you know. Um, where I grew up, that's pretty common. I think like, even like when you have a non-native parent, uh, you know, that culture is embraced out there where, where we're from by pretty much everyone. Um, after high school, I graduated from, so I went to school at Kenwood through the eighth grade, um, went to high school, Locust Grove, graduated from there, went on to Oklahoma State University. And uh, then I went to television broadcasting. I was a journalism major, went into TV and, uh, was a TV producer in Topeka, Kansas, and then came back to Tulsa and was a TV producer in Tulsa. And um, then decided maybe I wanted to, you know, do something a little bit different. I, I, PR, public relations seemed, seemed better than TV. You didn't have to, you know, work until the last thing was, until the last actual fire was put out <laughs> in TV. Like literally like, you know, you don't get to go home until, you know, the last actual fire was out somewhere and, you know, it was very stressful. I started grinding my teeth at night, like cracking these molars. So <laughs> um, I thought, well, PR, that actually seems kind of glamorous. Well, newsflash, TV seemed glamorous too, and it was not. And PR is not glamorous. So um, I had made the acquaintance of uh, the public information officer at the Cherokee Nation. And we had kind of chatted on the phone when I would call for information and he knew I was Cherokee. And so 
I kind of knew I would have a leg up if I applied for a job there because I was Cherokee. And so I knew they'd have to probably interview me or whatever. And so I thought, well, I'll kind of practice that out. You know, I don't think I want to work for them. Like I still kind of need some distance from my tribe. I mean, if you grew up in your, you know, around your tribe, especially in the eighties, <laughs> I mean, it was a whole other animal back then, you know, just having to get your, you know, having to get your health care from the clinics and just everything that went with, you know, accessing tribal services in the, in the eighties was just these kids these days, they don't know how well they've got it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was a, it was a whole different animal back then. And so, um, I wasn't really sure like I wanted to work for the tribe. Um, but I thought I'll just practice, I'll just practice doing the interviews. I'll practice doing this, you know, PR interview thing. And so I applied for a job and, um, I, I got an interview and interviewed and I was like, and they offered me the job. I was like, eh, I'm not really quite ready to leave TV just yet. And then, you know, they called me up when there was another job open uh, in Tahlequah at the time. And I applied for that one. No, nah, not really ready to get. Anyway, they, they really offered me like three jobs before finally um, they had a job open in Catoosa. And this is whenever the businesses were coming around, you know, the, the casinos were growing. They were starting to grow their business arm. And I thought, OK, like I can because I was living in Tulsa, working in, in a TV station, of course. And, you know, driving back to Tahlequah, taking a job in Tahlequah just felt really like going to back far close to home um you know i was born in tahlequah i was born at hastings hospital at the at the indian hospital and so um you know i just wasn't quite sure i wanted to go back all the way home yet i enjoy living in tulsa and so um i thought but katusa that's just that's a suburb of tulsa I, I could do that and so i was actually i took that one finally and i was my boss's first hire um for cherokee nation businesses at the time and um And I just kind of moved up from there. That was in 2005 and just, you know, um, just moved up. I started as a media relations coordinator and uh, just watched everything just grow. Um, Eventually, over the course of 15 years, (laughs) started as a media relations coordinator. And then, um, you know, by the end, um, by 2020, over the course of that time, you know, I had, you know, you know, changed job titles many times. I was media relations coordinator. I became a communications manager, director of communications, vice president of communications, and then um, was able to have, you know, uh, bosses and worked under three different chiefs and just had people who were really supportive of all of my ideas. And, you know, under all of that, my department was able to start, you know, a magazine called uh, Anadisco, where we would just package together press releases we'd done over the um, course of the year and, you know, we'd send this magazine out quarterly, started something called where the casino money goes because people always ask, we well, have these big casinos, where's all that money go? So we started that and just a really simple explainer to kind of just satisfy the curiosity of people. We have all these casinos, casinos, what do you do with the money? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think probably the thing I'm most proud of is starting the television show, OCO, Voices of the Chair People. Um, which was the first, you know, kind of docu-series that was all Native produced, all um, about Native stories, you know, um, that's been on for, I think they started their eighth season now, seventh or eighth, something like that. And um, uh, then Cherokee Nation Film Office was kind of the last thing I had undertaken whenever I was there and just always had, you know, like I said, bosses and, and chiefs that were really supportive of all the kind of crazy ideas I had about you know, talking about what the tribe was doing, um, helping 
tell the world what the Cherokee Nation was doing, telling Native stories, Cherokee stories, and just getting our, you know, our narrative out there. And then um, in 2020, this is right before the pandemic hit, I, you know, I'd always kind of wanted to do my own thing and take what I had been creating on behalf of the Cherokee Nation and help other tribes. Over that time, I'd, you know, I mean, what I, I just knew that what we were doing really needed to be replicated in other places in Indian country. And, um, you know, I always just felt like, you know, other tribes need to be doing this too. Um, other tribally owned businesses, companies, organizations, tribal adjacent um, organizations, they they also need this. Um, everyone needs to get their story out there. I always used to say, if, if nobody's going to tell our story for us. So we have to do that. And when other people do tell our story for us, it doesn't always go the right way. So, um you know, that's, you know, it's always been a big dream of mine to start my own uh, company and kind of replicate this for other um, other organizations, other tribes. And so that's what I'm doing now. Beautiful. There's, there's so many things there that I'm learning about you that are akin to my family's story as well. You know, for those who don't know, uh, my and my my heritage, my on my mother's side, my grandmother's side, great grandmother's side, who's on the dolls roll, you know, she's the one that got the allotment. Um, is Muscogee, Muscogee Nation. And when I was in my early twenties, <clears throat> uh, one of the times I went to Tulsa to go visit, where where our family was allotted land in the Berry Hill area, um, outside of Tulsa. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're in this book that somebody did a history of Berry Hill and our family is represented in the stories. And my grandmother is in there and, and some of her ancestors um, are interviewed and put in that book. And I'm building a documentary <laughs> tying to what you've talked about. Like we bonded over being documentary filmmakers and the, wanting to tell the stories because we can and our ancestors you know, couldn't do it the way we do it, you know, in a record keeping kind of way. And um, uh, so I've been doing over the years, a lot of different footage of my family's stories just to document it, you know, for, for further um, generations. But a couple of things, we have a family um, cemetery as well, the post Oak cemetery, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you have to be Muscogee nation. Um, and I guess related to the post, there aren't yes. folks there, but by name, but yeah, you, you know, and it's on somebody's private land now, but they do allow us access. Um, mm-hmm. And our family land, there was acres and acres given out, um, but all of it has been sold or taken over by eminent domain, domain that has become a freeway, except for one, one photos of the, um, family on the front stairs you know and for the last hundred years all these different family photos of people sitting on those same stairs in front of the house is is pretty beautiful um there was a time when my grandmother sat us all around and gave us animal names gave us names and and i and i was uh given gazelle so um if you ever see me out and about often i'm wearing adidas gazelles and that is to honor mm. the name that my grandmother gave me. I'm thinking it's because of my legs and how I'm 5'10". So, because it's not that I'm fast. That's not it. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the reason. But um, anyway, so I just think that's, that's absolutely beautiful. And you were talking about, like, I want to tell the stories. And I want people, I don't want to yeah. lose the language, you know, the Cherokee language. And I want 
to tell stories that are accurate, you know, um, and stepping into the talents that you have with your personal experience, your upbringing that you just shared, but also your professional experience as a communicator and a storyteller, as a TV journalist, TV show producer, and, you know, doing your own shows and your own PR, you know, for the Cherokee Nation, et cetera, et cetera. Pulling that all together, let's talk about the language that communicators need to be more consciously aware of when they're referring to uh, indigenous uh, folks. And if you could help us with like some tips, some techniques, some guidance on what they need to be aware of, you know, and I, I, you know, as well as visual representation, not just in language, but, you know, some things that they need to keep in mind to interrupt any kind of unconscious bias. Uh, an accidental or unintentional reinforcement of a negative stereotype, for example, like how do we curb that? And what are some, some guidance that you can offer communicators to really help them understand that essentially what's the saying, tell the whole bloody truth. Um, You know, essentially a lot that is out there is, is saying it paints a picture of native folks like they're only historical, but they look like you, they look like me. Mm -hmm. And if anyone has watched Reservation Dogs, I look like White Steve, (laughs) that character White Steve. So whenever I walk Mm -hmm. into a Muscogee, you know, museum or, you know, a Muscogee Nation, you know, building and I tell them, you know, my ancestry, Turtle, my grandmother went to one of the Oklahoma residential schools. The boarding mm-hmm. schools. So she's a survivor of one of those schools um, up north in Oklahoma, which is now a police academy, a training facility for police. And that, that Chilaco. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, Chilaco. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's a whole other story. But she became very quiet and mute and did not pass on a lot. We didn't even know about the race massacre of 1921 in Tulsa until it became more of a thing out in the world. She didn't talk about it and she was there. I mean, she was alive. She was in Tulsa when it happened. So the storytelling from her generation to my mom's generation was virtually non-existent. And so I'm kind of trying to regenerate it. But one of these key things that we need to do is really help our communicators make sure that they're much more consciously aware of how they're talking about indigenous experiences how do we bring indigenous voices to be more visible like what we're doing right here with you amanda like mm-hmm. here's the mic like i'm handing you the mic here's the video camera like let's talk about how communicators need to be more accurately appropriately working with and get, providing more visible visibility to indigenous folks you know, I want to start out by talking, by mentioning Sterling. Um, you know, Sterling was one of the co-creators on OCO Voices of the Cherokee People. And um, I just want to give him so, like, I mean, not like he hasn't gotten so many accolades from uh, critics and um, pundits and um, um, publications and academies. And I mean, endless, endless accolades from people. 
much. Yeah, Sterling Harjo. Yes, creator, producer, director, writer, extraordinaire of Reservation Dogs and many other um, incredible works. Um, You know, he's gotten accolades from people way more important than me. Um, But, you know, I just want to point out that, you know, Sterling has put in the hard work for years he did not just stumble upon this. You know, he has been do- grinding, doing the hard work, you know, for 20 plus years, you know, making small films, scraping it together, doing the hard work, doing the film studies. I mean, he has been doing the hard work for a long time, a very long time. And, you know, every bit of success that comes his way is well-deserved and more. And what I, I mean, I love Res Dogs. Like it is, and and I mean, everybody loves it. It's so good. And when I watch it, like it feels so real and so authentic. And I think, I know it's because, you know, Sterling grew up in Holdenville, you know, in the heart of the Muscogee Nation. And um, that's his experience. He's writing about his adolescence. And it's, I, I, I mean, I haven't spoken to him about this, but I know he's drawing off of what he experienced. And that is his experience, his very authentic experience. And I give him so much credit for committing to shoot all of that in the Muscogee Nation. I mean, there are some parts where they went out, but I mean, it is true to form. They shot, you know, I would say 99% of it in the Muscogee Nation and, you know, using an all native writer's room and using so many natives for casting and for um, wardrobe, for just, you know, filling so many roles on that, project um you know in front of the camera behind the camera i i just and that's why it feels so real and there's so many inside jokes like i have friends who are not native at all and they're like or people i've met and they're like i mean i knew there were a lot of inside jokes that i didn't get and i could tell they were funny but i didn't know why they were funny <laughs> and i had people ask me like what was the deal with the owl whatever the eyes covered and you know certain things like that and the funniest parts to me were the ones at the clinic like the funniest parts to me were the the skits at the clinic um i mean there's just so many parts of it that were so funny and um and when i look at those kids and whenever i when the scenes inside the homes like those houses like i can smell those houses smell i know how they smell <laughs> i know how the carpet feels Well, I mean, it's just, it's not even just, I mean, it's like, I can smell the inside of that house and I know how that carpet feels and I know how that couch feels. And it's like, and I know those kids. Now I wasn't those kids. My my parents kept two title leash on me. Like I wasn't those kids, but I knew those kids. And it's just, it's so real and it's so authentic to like our small communities here in Oklahoma. And so sort of to your point, I think Communicators have to engage people who have that lived experience, who have that experience of living in these communities and 
just being able to bring that true authentic experience to what you're doing to your project. And I think it's more than just having a tribal citizenship card or a CDIB or check in the box that, you know, I, I included somebody that, you know, check the box. Mm-hmm. It's engaging people who have a true authentic experience. And, and that's why his show has been so successful. And it's why he'll continue to be successful because I think he showed that he was committed to doing things the right way, his way. And it, it, he knocked it out of the park. Knocked it out of the park. Just incredible. I agree. I agree. And one of my favorite scenes of the show is when Willie Jack, is that is that the name of the character, mm-hmm. the nickname of the character, um, mm-hmm. when she's sitting in the prison mm-hmm. visiting her auntie, auntie and the, the ancestors show up behind her. Like, I lost it. Because that's one of the mm-hmm. most beautiful parts about native people is we call each other relatives. We understand that we are all related and we are related Mm -hmm. to the land. We are stewards of the land. We are not owners. We are not possessors. We are stewards of the land. We work with the land and we are responsible for it and for caring for each other. There's a sense of, of, of kinship. And that scene just took me down. And because I feel, as I was sharing earlier, because my grandmother was so quiet her entire life, she spoke very, very little because the boarding school was successful in kind of taking her voice. And I am wanting to completely 180 that and bring her voice and add mine to it. And seeing that ah it's just it still still gets me when i picture it just having the ancestors behind the character oh woo still gets me <laughs> well i i, I want to say something about being like a steward of the land like i just want to make one point that i don't think people think about enough like i mean how can you own something that was here before you and it's going to be here long after you right right how do you own something that you didn't create and that will long outlast you right and is providing you life Sure. You know? yeah. And so, yeah, I completely agree. That, There's a you, And you know, that ancestral scene, um, one of the things I have really, really enjoyed about working with other tribes is getting out of my five tribes bubble and seeing how these other tribes, um, how their cultures, their customs. And I have considered it an incredible privilege to work with other tribes that are not in the five, what I call the five tribes bubble. I mean, it has been such an incredible blessing and a privilege to work with these other tribes. Um, I was working with one tribe in particular on a cultural video series and um, became, uh, you know, close with one of the people in the project. And she said something to me one time and I, you know, I was kind of, I mean, because again, I'm not identifiable Cherokee, I mean, or native. Native, you know, when someone looks at me, they'll automatically think, oh, she's native, you know. Um, my great grandmother, who was full blood, was um, her mother died in childbirth and her dad passed away when she was three. Um, she was adopted by white folks and, you know, they still lived in the Locust Grove area and she was still raised around all of her siblings and everything. But, you know, um, to a large extent, uh, her language was taken from her. She was, you know, to a large extent deprived of a great deal of her culture. Um, you know, still raised around her family, her blood family and all of that. And, you know, we still 
are very tight knit and all of that. But, you know, to a large extent, a lot of that was taken from her. Um, but anyway, um, but, you know, when someone looks at me, they're not going to say, oh, she's native. Um, but, you know, I was working on this project and I was, you know, talking to this person at this, from this other tribe and, and it was a language and a culture project uh, video series. And I said something about, um, you know, I kind of felt this way or that way about something without getting too far into what we we're discussing. But she said, you know, Amanda, you need to embrace that. She said, don't you dismiss that just because you did not, you know, grow up, um, you know, going to stomp grounds just because you didn't grow up doing X, Y, Z. She said, you embrace that because you know what your ancestors, they prayed for you a hundred years ago. And you know what? Cause I know I pray for my descendants a hundred years from now. And she said, you had people praying for you a hundred years ago. You need to embrace those prayers. You need to embrace that. Don't you reject, don't you reject that? Because if you do, you're disrespecting your ancestors because you had someone praying for you a hundred years ago and you need to embrace that. And if you don't, you're disrespecting your ancestors. So don't you turn away from that. You need to embrace that. And that really, you know, stuck with me. I thought it was really, um, you know, it was kind of one of those moments that you don't forget and that you really have to stop and think about because, you know, she, you know, she's right there. You know, there was someone who she said, someone sent up prayers for you a hundred years ago. And if you don't receive those, you know, you're not, you're not embracing what your ancestors wanted for you. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. We feel a sense of responsibility and the beauty absolutely. of uh, community actually, in this last season of Reservation Dogs, I recently shared a post talking about one of the quotes, same same characters in the prison, Auntie, uh, talking about, you know, why do you think they came for our community? If you, if you break the community, you break the individual. And mm -hmm. especially as we are experiencing a lot of very, very trying, very tense times that are bringing up relationships between oppressed and marginalized, um, colonized communities all over the world based on, um, you know, we're recording this in November of 2023 uh, with Israel um, mm -hmm. in the besieged area of Palestine um, in, the, in the Gaza area. So with that, there's been this tremendous showing up of different indigenous peoples <laughs> saying, we get it. <laughs> and then there's people from the black and African-American communities that are like showing up and they're like, we get it. You know, there's been this, this pulling together of community where we can say the community is still intact. And the, ind so the community hasn't been broken fully. Therefore the individual isn't broken fully and the individual is able to come together and form a community. And that's one of the things that I help communicators do is create within their workplaces a community that cannot be broken um, and that it can be this force for good, obviously. Um, it's Native American Heritage Month. As I mentioned, we're recording this in November of 2023 mm -hmm. in the problematic history considering, you know, <laughs> how it's been framed and the narrative around it and Every year, uh, it gets louder and louder where there's a lot of Native voices that want to teach people about historical accuracy around Thanksgiving, but also how to honor 
um, indigenous cultures at this time because it is a time of harvest. There's 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 a lot of benefits and there's a lot to celebrate um, when it comes to land and and in harvest, as I mentioned, and all of that. But it's turned into something else. Um, I would love, you know, I grew up on the Charlie Brown version of Thanksgiving. <laughs> and I noticed that Franklin was sitting by himself at the table. Uh, so it was like, what's that about? What's going on there? <laughs> and so, you know, and then, you know, but then it was later when I was older learning uh, the inaccuracies and, and learning more about the accuracies. Because like, as I mentioned, my grandmother did not speak and share and talk a lot about the history um, to do that. She felt like she was protecting us. Uh, but, you know, of course, I feel robbed um, that my grandmother was not did not feel free uh, and that she that she wasn't able to uh, to be live the life that she was probably um, poised to live <clears throat> as a matriarch. Um, and so I'd love to get your perspective as communicators work on messaging around Thanksgiving um, and want to do right uh, around Native American Heritage Month, not be performative. How do we get communicators who are not part of indigenous cultures to go beyond just the land acknowledgement and, and just saying happy Native American Heritage Month, that kind of thing? What do we do? Um, well, one thing I think it's also important to notice is, or to note is that it's Native American Heritage Month. It's not Native American History Month. And that's just a small slip of the tongue I hear people say sometimes. It's not Native American History Month. We're not here to celebrate history. We're here to celebrate heritage, which is still alive and well. So that's one thing is make sure that we're properly recognizing it. Um, and, you know, so I think that's one part of it is making sure that we're recognizing heritage that's alive and well and thriving and vibrant so that we're celebrating native heritage in a very contemporary way. You know, what are the ways that we're celebrating things that are alive and well and contemporary and current? Um, so that, that's, that's one part, but also um, uh, as far as Thanksgiving goes, um, one of my favorite documentaries is the pilgrims on PBS. Have you, have you watched this? It's it, not. It's so good. They they do show it usually in November on PBS, and I mean, if you really think about it, and, and you know, if you not if you think about it, I mean, it's true. Um, you know the you know the Puritans, the Pilgrims. I mean, they were just. I mean, they were just radical. Uh, you know, whack jobs that no country wanted them. I mean. They were like, you know what? Try making it over there. <laughs> Where you, you, good luck. And, um, you know, they sent them to a wilderness where they really didn't have much of an opportunity to, to survive. And William Bradford, who was leading them at that time, and I'm a documentary nut. Like, Ken Burns is my icon. Ken Burns, if you're listening, please listen. Let me come study under you. Um, but, um, you know, he day, he kept this time. journal. You know, you can, you know, I'll sign up in a second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, William Bradford, who was leading the group, um, he kept this diary and he lied so much. You know, he lied a lot about what happened there. And 
Um, it just doesn't match up with some of the other accounts that happened. Um, you know, things did not go. I mean, they, they, even by his account, they didn't go well, but they went worse even than by his account, but really his, um, uh, you know, things were not hunky dory at all. Um, so I just think, um, I mean, just teaching the facts, I think, and just making sure people know the facts is, you know, it just seems so basic, <laughs> but if we could just teach facts, I think that's what I'm, I think that's what's important. I mean, the, the land acknowledgement thing is fine. Um, you know, some people feel like it's very performative. Um, I, I don't know. Like sometimes I kind of wonder what we're getting out of it. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's, I, I think it's a good reminder that, you know, there were, I, I, I think it depends on the context and um, I don't know. It's, I think it just depends on what everybody's getting out of it and what, in what context it's being done in, I guess. Um, going back to res dogs, there is the, the scene where um, uh, Amber um, Mid Thunder, she's the Dartmouth grad. And just when she says she's the Dartmouth grad, like I already start laughing. She's like, <laughs> um, when she says she's from Dartmouth, I start laughing immediately. And, um, uh, and then she like starts acknowledging our dinosaur ancestors. And then like, you know, our alien ancestors are going to come after us or something. It's so funny. Like that might be like my favorite part of my favorite episode in the whole series. It's so funny. Um, so yeah, I, <sighs> I guess whatever you're going to do, just be meaningful and not performative. Just make sure whatever you're doing has a purpose and, you know, that purpose, it just fulfills some sort of a purpose at the end. And that, that people who are not part of the community are deciding what that meaningfulness is. That's no, we don't, you don't get to do that. It has to be meaningful to the community that you're trying to raise visibility to try to improve whatever it may be, access to jobs and opportunity, compensation, um, a voice at, if you have a sustainability plan and you don't have indigenous people a part of, as part of your environmental and sustainability plan, you do not have a real environmental and sustainability plan. I have no problem saying that unequivocally. So having, having access to people who are going to know the land way the hell better than anybody who's you know, been around for a few decades or a few hundred years is it, you're just not going to be able to compare. So have you going and empowering people. And if you're a university, you're providing free scholarships and housing. I mean, if, especially if you're on the, on the lands of the people, the students who are trying to get in, it's like, they should not have to pay because, you know, the university came in through a land grant, you mm -hmm. know? And so it's just, there's ways that every single organization can meaningfully contribute to um, living up to the treaties that have been broken over the, you know, the last couple of yeah. years. There's something that everyone can do beyond that. And, and again, I will say this, you know, just going back to like engaging people um, who are, you know, engaging people who are authentic, who are from those communities and taking that one step further. I think that non-natives and I, I think that natives realize this, but I think non-natives too need to understand there's a difference between culture and government. Like my government is not my culture. Right. So I think that, and, and every tribe is different, right? So like there are three Cherokee tribes. There is the Eastern band of Cherokees. There's the United Ketua band of Cherokees. Then there's the Cherokee nation 
which is my tribe. I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. My dad was a citizen of the United Kituwa Band of Cherokees. We were two different tribes. Now, they have different, and, and I can never be a citizen of the Eastern Band of Cherokees because they are completely separate people with different, you know, enrollment qualifications. Like, I can never be part of their tribe because they use an entirely different role. Um, they never made them walk over here way back, you know, 100 and however many, 80 years ago. But now my dad, he was a quarter. Uh, United Kituwa Band has a blood quantum. You can't be less than one-fourth to be United Kituwa Band. Because my dad married someone who's not native, like, I can't be United to a band. He could be. I can't be. But you have to also be on certain roles to be United to a band. So, you know, I, I can't, unless they drop their blood quantum, I can't be United to a band. So I think that people need to understand that, like, government is also not culture, right? So we're all Cherokee. Cherokee can be our culture. Shared. That's our shared culture. But my government is not my culture. That's just my political affiliation, right? Like that's like that's what I'm a citizen. I'm a citizen of my of the Cherokee Nation. My dad was a citizen of the United Kituwa Band. But Cherokee was our shared culture. And so I think, you know, too often people, especially non-natives, will conflate government with culture and they're just not the same. Mm-hmm. You know, there are many, and I think, you know, with other tribes too, it's the same. I mean, there will be different tribes of the same, um, you know, people, but they're just different governments. They're just different, you know, political affiliations. And so I think that's something that non-natives just, I think, have a hard, a really, really hard time wrapping their heads around. And I think even some like, you know, Native Americans have a hard time that where their tribes just aren't splintered like that into different governments, right? They're... All their people are under one government. So I think too, um, and I would even say that since I don't work for my tribe anymore, I would say that I feel maybe even a little closer to my culture because the political stuff is just so far removed from me now. Mm-hmm. I would say that I have, because I don't have to worry about all of that anymore, mm-hmm. that I get to spend more time on our family land. I get to uh, connect with people in a way that I didn't before. Um, I would almost say that like I, I, I get to spend more time in my spare time um, reading about, you know, my ancestors and doing that kind of research and going to the places where, you know, our people are, you know, buried or whatever, or go, you know, going to visit my dad or thinking about those kinds of things. Like I get to spend more time doing that as opposed to running around the tribe all the time and, you know, trying to, you know, do the megaphone about what the tribe as a whole is doing. I get to spend more time connecting personally. So I would almost say that I connect more culturally now than I even did then. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. You know, pe- people have asked me too. People have asked me who they're like, you know, I, I want to really like, you know, reconnect with you know my culture. How do I do that? What's the best way to do that? And here's what I always say. Well, I, you know, my answer has changed like from, you know, many, years ago to now, now I always say this, I say, if you are feel disconnected from the tribe, from your tribe, whatever tribe that is, and you've lived off your, off the reservation or whatever, the first thing that you should do, I, this is, this is always my answer now is when you come back, go back to where you're from, go visit your ancestors, go visit your people, find out where they're buried, go there and thank them. Thank them for everything they've done. Thank them for the fact that you're still here. Thank them for their sacrifices and spend time with them. 
And if you don't know who they are and you don't know where they're buried, then you find out first and you go there and you thank them and you spend time with them and you find out who they were and what they were about. And that's your first step. And maybe that's as far as you get. And so maybe you find out at that point that you don't want to go further than that. And that's okay. Maybe you're just a visitor. Maybe you're just a tourist and you're, that doesn't make you less of a citizen, but maybe that's as far as your connection goes. Um, and that's all right. It doesn't make you less of a citizen or anything like that. But, you know, from there, I think it's up to you as to how closely you are connected. But I think to truly be connected, you know, it requires spending more and more time on your reservation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many more things that I could talk about with you. And <laughs> who knows, you might come back and, and do another one. But I, I really appreciate this. And we're also recording this at a time when um, Martin Scorsese has put out a movie uh, that was shot around mm-hmm. Tulsa on the Osage, you know, about the Osage. It's called mm-hmm. Killers of the Flower Moon. And so we're seeing an increase of representation of trying to tell the whole bloody truth, you know, the stories, um, but it's still coming from a white gaze. Um, and, but, you know, uh, so there's more work to be done, but we have people like Sterling Harjo, like you mentioned, and I have a little side note here. I have no tattoos. So if I ever end up like part of a trivia game, if anyone says, does Kim Clark have, you know, what, what, tattoos does kim clark have your answer is none but sterling harjo has a tattoo of the life knot which is a symbol in the muskogee nation and other traditions as well on the back of his hand so every time somebody takes a picture they see the life knot i have stickers of it i have i have the life knot all around my logo for my company is inspired by the life knot and i you know, it has got me thinking that if I were to ever have a tattoo, I would finally mm-hmm. know what it is, which is the life knot. Uh, so let me ask you this question, Amanda. Thank you for your time with us. What does communicating like you give a damn sound like and look like? And if there's anything you can tap into in your experience in creating those culture videos that you've done, um, with your, through your own firm, but also within the Cherokee nation, like how you approached it to make sure that it was authentic, accurate. Like if you can pull anything from that, but just in general, what does communicate like you give a damn sound like? Waking up every day, thinking about how you are going to, uh, make your community better and leave your mark on this world. Um, you know, right before OCO voices, the Cherokee people debuted, it was maybe a week or two before our first episode. And I was at my office, it was late at night. I was approving some videos, kind of going through making some edits, you know, sending some feedback back to the editing team. And it just suddenly like it, it, it got on my shoulders and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is going to be an historical record in a hundred years In a hundred years, someone is going to point back to this as a citation in, uh, in some research paper in some citation somewhere in a book, they're going to cite this as an historical record. And the weight of that just suddenly felt like, what am I doing? Why did I decide to do this? <laughs> 
um, and communicating in a way that like you understand that if you're communicating about these things, about indigenous issues and speaking with any iota of authority, just understanding that like that is the weight you are carrying, the weight of your ancestors, the weight of your descendants. You're carrying that weight and that responsibility and just understanding that every day when you wake up, that that is the weight you're carrying. Um, and it's a heavy responsibility. And if you're not ready to take that on, and if you're not ready to execute that kind of a vision, uh, then just stay in bed and do something else. Find somebody to partner with, to bring in, hire people, bring them in. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Either. I mean, I just think you just have to have that fire. You just have to have that fire. I mean, not everybody has to communicate in this way, but I mean, there are other things that, indigenous folks can do but if you're going to be a communicator in this way you better wake up every morning ready to do it and ready to do it in a way that like like you said like you give a damn you better wake up every morning knowing that you carry the weight of your ancestors your descendants and uh you know this entire culture uh your culture other other indigenous cultures you know on your shoulders and you know, if you're not ready to do that, if you're not ready to take that kind of responsibility on, you know, find a different way to contribute. But, you know, understand that you got to have that kind of commitment. I mean, that's to me, that's what communicating like you give a damn is. And for those who are non-native, setting that example for your family and for your team to bring in what is necessary so that your storytelling, your communications are authentic, that are coming from a personal Mm -hmm. and lived experience. It doesn't have to be your experience in order for you to capture that. When you bring the people who do have that experience, giving them a voice, hiring them. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you don't, yeah, I mean, if you don't have that capability on staff or if you don't feel like you can do that, if you, if it feels overwhelming, then yes, bring in the kind of person who does have that fire in their belly, who does, who is ready to take on that responsibility, then by all means, outsource that because there are people ready to do that. I will do that. You yes. will do that. <laughs> Someone else will do that. Um, you know, because that's the kind of stuff that I think, you know, uh, we live for. That's the kind of stuff that, you know, we'll work all through the night, all through the weekend and, you know, work ourselves to death for, um, you know, if you want those authentic stories, then that's, you know, there will be somebody out there who will do it. Um, but don't, you know, don't half-ass anything. Do not (laughs) half-ass anything. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, before I ask you how people can follow you, contact you, uh, work with you, tell me about Mm -hmm. the artwork for those who are on YouTube and watching this, if you oh, that for those in, in, you know, who are not watching on YouTube, can you describe it and kind of give us what the story is there? That is a Tracy rabbit, uh, piece of work. And so funny story. Uh, so Tracy rabbit is, um, a native artist. She's female. We, we did a, um, we actually did, a, she's one of the first stories we did on OCO voices of charity people. She's from Mays County. She's from my neck of the woods and she's incredible. Um, um, you, she's in, I think season one of OCO voices of the Cherokee people. Um, and I was just at a, uh, like a parent teacher, uh, option, like the PTA, whatever for Locust Grove, uh, back in my hometown. And this was up for auction and Tracy rabbit's work goes for thousands and thousands of dollars. And she had donated this to this PTA group and it was being bid on for like 
a hundred dollars to, I was like, why is this only going for like 200 bucks? And I was like, I'll take it. I got this for $300. It's a Tracy rabbit. And I was like, people are nuts. People are nuts. So, but, but she's from, but she's from our neck of the woods. So people like, they don't, they don't understand how incredible she is. So this, this is my office. This is my conference room in my office. So I hung it up here. So I got that Tracy rabbit. Yeah. Something I want to share. And 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 also, also Lauren Goodday. I actually don't wear this shirt very often because I think it makes me look as big as a house, but Lauren Goodday is like my favorite, like native designer. I buy much her stuff. I follow her on um, Instagram. Um, she's so awesome. Lauren Goodday. I forget what tribe she is. Blackfeet maybe. I can't remember, but she's incredible. Follow her on Instagram. She has the best clothes. She's awesome. So I have some, some original artwork right there. You can see the turtle there. I got that in Oak, Oak Mulgee mm-hmm. and, um, uh, okay. a word of warning for anybody who wants to buy, uh, native art, especially jewelry. There is a lot of native looking jewelry that is not made by native artists. So you want to culturally appreciate, not appropriate. And you ask if you see jewelry with turquoise on it, you're like, who made this? And if they don't know, or if they, if, if you say, is this native made, like actually is this money going back to the, the artist, the tribe, whoever do not buy it, please. Please only support authentic jewelry made by people who are um, members of, of their I can't, Yeah, I can't remember where I got these earrings, but it was somebody on Instagram. And I will say this, a lot of Native artists, really, they sell on Instagram. A lot of them do not have yes. websites. They will sell on Instagram. Um, this is um, Dentillion and Baby Elktooth. And this woman sold me these on Instagram. Um, I can I wish I could remember her name, but a lot of them do not have websites. Instagram is honestly one of the best places to find native art, native jewelry, native, native textiles. Uh, yeah. Some powwows are open to the public. And so if you do attend a powwow, um, abide by the cultural rules and not take videos and photos of everything. They don't, they want it mm-hmm. sometimes and sometimes they don't. So make sure that you're adhering to that and you support the local artists there. Come with your cash, come with your credit card, your debit card, support the local artists that are, that are a part of powwows because you are getting directly to supporting those artists. And I can't, I can't stress that enough. And if you haven't had fry bread, <laughs> one must have fry bread at least once in their life. <laughs> The dessert or the meal doesn't matter to me, but it's just, it's just staple food. But you are a guest. If you're non-native and you go to a, a, a powwow where it's open to the public, you are a guest. Please act accordingly. Um, be under their rules. It is their culture, their traditions, and please adhere and honor what their, their, their rules of, of uh, conduct are. And and know the difference between something like a powwow and like the Osage Alonshka dances. Like the Osage Alonshka dances are not powwows. Those are their cultural dances. You must be invited to go. So if you hear about like the like the Osage Alonshka dances are always in June, um, those are by invite only. You must be invited by an Osage. There's no photography whatsoever underneath the arbors. And so um, I know they're going to have, you know, they're trying to get the word out about what's um, what's open to the public, what's not, um, do not go to their cemeteries. <laughs> They've already had a problem with that of people trying to sightsee at their cemeteries. Do not visit those. They are not tourist attractions. 
please be right. respectful. Um, you know, I just know that they're having like a big issue with that since the films come out. And so, um, you know, just, you know, try to, if you're, if you're wanting to visit a tribe uh, or a tribal reservation, just please, you know, try to educate yourself first between what's a powwow, what's a cultural dance, what's appropriate to visit, what's not, you know, they're just different protocols. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I want to refer uh, podcast listeners to another podcast episode where we uh, talk to someone out of Canada, um, you know, being indigenous in Canada and Métis. And so we talk there about working with journalists uh, as journalists and, and working with tribes, chiefs, when they are, when we are working with them with the media or having them as part of events, uh, what is appropriate to honor their timing, their culture, the need for sage and other kinds of uh, uh, ceremonies that are necessary uh, according to their culture and traditions to honor that. Um, okay, Amanda, how do we find you? How do we work with you, follow you, keep in touch? I mostly try to hide, but um, okay, so I can, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I think I'm just, uh, Amanda, I think I'm just like LinkedIn, Amanda, Clinton. We can put it in I the think. show notes. It's completely fine. <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I think it's just LinkedIn.com backslash Amanda Clinton. Um, right. uh, and then on, I'm on IMDb. I have an IMDb. It's just. I think I'm just Amanda Clinton on IMDb. For film folks, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you can find me on IMDb for Amanda Clinton. Um, um, what is my LinkedIn now? Now I'm. Now I'm. Um, I have it. I have it. We'll make sure it's in the show notes. Well, we um, sure appreciated your time and sharing your story. And I and I am I am on Twitter. You guys can find me on Twitter. I am Twitter AC um, uh, underscore No Chill because I have no chill. So. <laughs> yeah Thank you. Thank so you yeah i'm uh yeah i'm just linkedin backslash amanda clinton just one word amanda clinton all right yes. all right thank you thank you for sharing your personal all right. and professional okay. experience and building our skills as communicators to be honoring of indigenous native thank you so much it's been really fun thank you so much. have me back anytime this is great we have so much more to talk about uh, yeah yeah, especially when I come to Tulsa next, I'm going to make sure that we yes. um, meet up. So there's, there's more love conversation that. to happen. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Okay, so what popped out to you from this conversation? And I mean, it may take a minute to process, but be sure not to brush off what you just heard. Look, you just need a partner to be with you through this experience and understand what to do next. So I'm inviting you to set up a one-on-one strategy session. All you need to do is go to communicate like you give a damn the podcast.com and you'll see the button there. The more conscious communicators in the world, the better the world. So thank you for listening. And until next time, let's communicate like we give a damn.